This podcast is brought to you by Yeshivat Tekoa under the auspices of the Steinsalt Center. The Steinsalt Center is responsible for all the activities of Rabbi Adin Eben Yisrael Steinsaltz. Its goal is to promote the rabbi's mission of Let My People Know, making a world of Jewish knowledge accessible to all. The center's activities include publishing the rabbi's writings and teachings, establishing educational programs and centers, and much more. For more information, please Google the Steinsalt Center or enter the link in the podcast description. The Thirteen Petaled Rose, a discourse on the essence of Jewish existence and belief. Written by Rabbi Evan Yisrael Steinsaltz. Chapter 10, Mitzvot The Jewish way of life, or the way of life of a Jew who lives according to the Torah, is held to be extremely difficult. According to tradition, there are said to be 613 commandments in the Torah. This, however, is misleading in a number of respects. For one thing, Many of the positive commandments, that is, mitzvot that obligate one to perform certain actions, along with many of the prohibitions, are not actually concerned with life, but refer either to the general structure of the whole of the Torah or to the Jewish nation as a body. No Jew, therefore, can be expected to keep all of the mitzvot. Actually, only a small number of the mitzvot relate to daily life, though if one adds to the formal list of mitzvot all the minute details that are not specifically included, one arrives at a sum of not hundreds but thousands of things that are to be done at certain times, at certain places, and in a special way. Indeed, seen as a separate and unrelated commandments, each as an individual obligation and burden, these ancillary mitzvot seem to be a vast and even an absurd assortment of petty details, which are, if not downright intimidating, then at least troublesome. What we call details, however, are only parts of greater units, which in turn combine in various ways into a single entity, It is as though in examining the leaves and flowers of a tree, one were to be overwhelmed by the abundance, the variety, and the complexity of detail. But when one realizes that it is all part of the same single growth, all part of the same branching out into manifold forms of the one tree, then the details would cease to be disturbing and would be accepted as intrinsic to the wondrousness of the whole. A basic idea underlying Jewish life is that there are no special frameworks for holiness. A man's relation to God 
is not set apart on a higher plane, nor relegated to some special corner of time and place, with all the rest of life taking place somewhere else. The Jewish attitude is that life in all its aspects, in its totality, must somehow or other be bound up with holiness. This attitude is expressed in part through conscious action, that is, through the utterance of prescribed prayers and blessings, and following prescribed forms of conduct, and, in part, by adhering to a number of prohibitions. Man generally passes through the world aware that is full of possible colors and meanings, and he tries to make his own connection with all its many possibilities. What he may be less aware of is the fact that there are worlds upon worlds besides the one he knows, dependent on his actions. In Judaism, man is conceived in all the power of his body and soul as the general agent, the chief actor on a cosmic stage. He functions or performs as a prime mover of worlds, being made in the image of the Creator. Everything he does constitutes an act of creation, both in his own life and in other worlds, hidden from his sight. Every single particle of his body and every nuance of his thought and feeling are connected with forces of all kinds in the cosmos, forces without number, so that the more conscious he is of this order of things, the more significantly does he function as a Jewish person. The system of the mitzvot constitutes the design for coherent harmony, its separate components being like the instruments of an orchestra. So vast is the harmony to be created by this orchestra that it includes the whole world and promises the perfecting of the world. Seeing the mitzvot in this light, one may understand on the one hand the need for so great a number of details, and, on the other, the denial of any exclusive emphasis on any one detail or aspect of life. The mitzvot as a system include all of life, from the time one opens one's eyes in the morning until one goes to sleep, from the day of birth to the last breath. Nevertheless, for practical purposes, the system of mitzvot may be divided into several main fields, prayer and blessing, modes of conducting oneself on special days in the week or in the year, dietary regulations such as permitted and forbidden foods, sexual behavior, relation to one's fellow man. Daily life is marked off by three principal sessions of prayer. The prescribed body of prayer is, except for minor differences, the same for each session. Shacharit, the morning prayer, is recited before all activity is begun. The Mincha, afternoon prayer, before the sun sets, and the Mariv, evening prayer, in the night. The times fixed for these prayers are intended not only to coincide with the changing of the day, but also to make response to a subtle difference to the hours of the rising light 
the declining light, and the actual darkness. The prayers are also related to the practical concerns of man. From the morning's preparations in spiritual terms for the activities of the day, to the late afternoon when man completes the tasks of the day and, still immersed in the day, is reminded that even in these hours he has to renew the contact with holiness. The evening prayer, recited at the end of the day's work, prepares one for making a reckoning with the soul and for rest. The morning prayer, with its requirements that one don phylacteries and its additional selections for reciting, lasts longer than the others. The liturgy as a whole reflects the historic development of the Jewish people, every period adding something of its own. As a result, besides long selections from the Bible, the order of prayers contains verses and prayers from the time of the Second Temple and the generations following, up to and including the Middle Ages and even beyond. Basically, these prayers have a double significance, national and personal. They are for the most part general, rather than the supplication of a person in trouble. A person in need, of course, turns to the source of holiness with his own particular request or thanksgiving. But the liturgy as a whole simply provides for the participation of the individual in the prayers of the people. Therefore, the prayers have a fixed order and wording and are generally spoken in the plural. At the same time, within the arrangement, there is offered a prayer, a verse, or a sentence, or even a whole order of prayers, which express an individual's feelings at a particular moment. In the praying itself, there is a kind of unification of all the souls present. The people taking part seem to become aware of one another and concerned about one another, just as there is verbalized expression of concern for the general welfare. Thus, the individual praise can, if he wishes, introduce a personal theme into the fixed liturgy, which is intentionally open enough to allow everyone to express himself. Personal prayers are not supposed to be spontaneous outbursts of emotion, and indeed there is no place for such outbursts. There is a time set aside and a special formulation for personal prayer, and whenever one wishes, one can do so. The traditional liturgy is a repetitive exercise for the soul, fixed by a carefully selective process, determined upon by the people as a collective entity over the centuries. It includes various meditational exercises before and during prayer, and constitutes a way to rise in consciousness within a controlled situation. Thus, prayer is not only an articulation of certain words, but also a key and a sort of ladder on which a person may reach from level to level, if indeed he lends himself to the prayer according to its essence. In addition to these prayers, whose contents are more or less fixed, there are many blessings. These are generally quite short, no more than reminders to a person 
that the action he is taking are not just movements without meaning, but they have significance and content. Such a blessing is recited before almost every mitzvah and also before almost every enjoyment that one experiences in the world, whether food and drink, smell, or a pleasurable sight of all sorts. In fact, the task of the blessing is to remind one to halt the process of habit and routine, which draws man always into the realm of the mechanical and meaningless, and to set up a moment of change in the flow of life. The brief declaration that this particular thing one is not doing is not for oneself or of oneself, but that at some point it is connected with a higher world. By these blessings, then, scattered throughout the entire day, in all manner of situations, one attains to an integration of the ordinary, habitual elements of life with a higher order of sanctity. Besides the weekdays, with their own round of daily prayer, there are larger cycles of the week, the months and the year, each with its special days, Sabbaths, festivals, and days of remembrance. The days of remembrance are usually holy days, fast days, recalling distressing events in the nation's history, or joyful days to commemorate miracles and acts of divine grace. The central pillars in the structure of Jewish time, however, are the Sabbaths and the Holy Days, written about in the Torah itself. The theme of these days and their special quality is a certain festive tranquility. They are days of absolute rest from work and activity of all kinds. The Sabbath, with its severe prohibitions against all work, is actually connected with the process of creation. Just as the creation of the world took place in six stages, six days of forming the things that comprise the physical world, so are the six days devoted to working on the material world, repairing, building it up, raising it to a higher level. And the Sabbath that follows is again a return to the life within oneself, a return like that of the Creator himself to the higher worlds, the spiritual essences, the changeless source of all change. For being in the image of God, man must continue to carry or to supplement and to repair the original creation and then retreat into himself, withdrawing from physical creativity and renewing the holiness that comes from rest and complete peace. The halakha, the formal structure defining the order of mitzvot prescribes in great detail the many things one is forbidden to do on the Sabbath. All of them, however, are derived from the same basic idea that the Sabbath is the day when one ceases to be a creator in the domain of the outer world and turns inward to holiness. This dual quality of the day in which one is not only to refrain from creativity, but also to complete creativity in spiritual terms, follows, of course, from this idea. So that tikkun, putting the world in order, even the correcting of one's own soul or healing its wounds, is not for the Sabbath. 
The Sabbath is to be made available for summation of the things acquired during the week. In an attempt to raise them spiritually, and knowingly or unknowingly, to bring the weak to a greater harmony, to a higher level of perfection. Thus the Sabbath is the completion or the crowning of the week, when all that was done of a material and spiritual nature during the previous six days is summed up and enjoyed. That is to say, it is brought to a higher level of consecration in order that again in the following week there will be another rise in the same cycle of days. The same insistence on rest and repudiation of everyday activity is true also for the holidays, even though these feast days do not contain the same profound idea of imitating the divine process of creation in the cycle of one week. Still, they are bound up with the cycle of the year, the annual memorials of historic events in the nation's history which is also the divine history of mankind. Certain allowances are made to ease the sabbatical strictness of the feast days. Nevertheless, the tendency is to go inward. Every holiday has its own particular quality, its own essence and spirituality, so that the way it is celebrated and the whole attitude of the soul toward it is different. The annual cycle goes from Passover, the memorial day for the beginning of the life of the soul and for the life of the nation, through the Feast of Shavuot, the time of overcoming resistance and obstacles and the commemoration of the receiving of the Torah, which is the standing forth before the Supreme, until the Feast of Sukkot, which is a time of ripening and maturity and reward. The Day of Atonement, which is also numbered among the holidays, is a special day. Although a fast day, it is also the Sabbath of Sabbath, embodying a moment in time that is even beyond the Sabbath. It is that day in the year which brings forth atonement, when the lower the human world again rises, not only above the cycle of physical life, but also, in a certain sense, above the all-embracing factors determining everything in an individual's own existence. It is the day on which nothing is done because creativity has been halted in the world. It is the day on which nothing is eaten or drunk because primordially man then comes out of the womb of the world to another realm. And only in this standing forth of a man, which is his final release from toil and his exit from the world, does he make contact with that which is beyond the world, with the divine, with the absolute, by the sign of whom he is able to move beyond the frontiers of the past, beyond the deeds he has done, and the life he has lived, and attain to a higher stage of being, and find rest and renewal on the plane of divine forgiveness. And again, all the holidays, festivals, and memorials have many features, often seen as difficult restrictions or customs, each one of which grows organically out of the fundamental idea of the sacred day to which it belongs. Thus, in order for a person to gain the benefit of the special day, 
he must concentrate his energies and focus his consciousness on this significant idea and its symbolic representations. He has to attune himself to catch its resonance. The numerous and various details of the commandments then cease to be burdensome and are accepted wholly as an outer expression, the clear and specified relationship of the person with the fundamental spiritual experience. The mitzvot and the halachot pertaining to what a Jew may or may not eat, all that concerns kashrut, are based on the principle that a man cannot live a higher, nobler life of the spirit without having the body undergo some suitable preparation for it. From one point of view, the precepts concerning what is allowed and what is forbidden to eat make up a sort of diet of sanctity, a system of instructions guiding a person's choice of food so that he may derive maximum good from the mutual influence of body and soul. As regards holiness, in the Jewish view, the eating of a forbidden food is not only a transgression and so a unification with the domain of evil, but also an act damaging to the network of relationships between body and soul. The principle involved here is that food is a matter of levels of essence, graduating in quality of being from the level of matter to that of a living thing, plants, animals, and special kinds of animals, with a proportionately increasing number of restrictions in the way each type of food is prepared and eaten. Thus, in the domain of matter, nothing is actually prohibited, because this domain is not sensitive to distinctions between the holy and the unholy. Even in the domain of vegetation, the only restrictions relate to that which grows in the land of Israel. All that grows outside the Holy Land is considered edible at all times, whereas rules limit the eating of things grown within the country on the premise that the holiness of the land gives things to a higher level of being and a sensitivity to holiness. The principle is more conspicuous in the domain of life of animal meat. There are, of course, several categories of prohibition. First of all, all living creatures without backbone are absolutely forbidden. Most fish with fins and scales are permitted, and the others are not. Also, there is no special preparation needed for eating fish. Of fowl, there is a certain list of birds that one may eat, but they have to be slaughtered in a special way with the recitation of certain prayers, with the least possible amount of pain and suffering, with the letting of all the blood, and so forth, so that the meat may be fit to merge with the human body. Even more severe are the rules concerning the eating of the higher animals, only a small number of which are permitted. The slaughtering process and the preparations before cooking are prescribed with exactitude. The mixing of certain types of foods, like meat and milk products, is absolutely forbidden. 
altogether. The mixing of two different orders of things is a general prohibition in the halakha, even beyond the dietary laws of kashrut. To be sure, not in every realm of existence do we know the frontiers of distinction between one order and another. But the Torah has specified a number of them for the sake of maintaining a degree of purity. The basic principle is, of course, not purity for its own sake, but the need to bring all things in the world to the state of tikkun or perfection, to raise them up by correcting, remedying, and seeing them right, to recreate a thing by stripping it to its essential, to redeem it by allowing it to be its utmost, so that the act of eating something should not be a destruction and a ravaging, but a tikkun or consecration of the food. And the eating of impure food or improperly mixed food depresses and causes a person to descend or diminish in terms of level of being. Therefore, too, eating and drinking on Sabbaths and festival days becomes more than a satisfying of normal instincts. It is a mitzvah in itself, because on such holy days the nation can better raise up and hallow the things of this world, and the feast becomes an occasion of unity with the Creator. When the temple stood, ritual sacrifice was itself an occasion for a communal meal in which man participated with the higher power in an act of communion. To this day, an ordinary table is considered to be a sort of altar at which the one who partakes of food performs an analogous act, however incompletely elevating matter to the level of man, by making it serve human purpose and drawing certain forces away from the world into the active domain of holiness. Extreme care has therefore to be exercised with respect to what is eaten, and the manner in which one eats has to be consistent with the purpose of consecration. Eating is not a casual hedonistic act, it is a ceremony. A similar attitude prevails on the subject of sexual life. In Judaism, sex is never looked on as something wrong or shameful. It is, on the contrary, considered to be a high level of action, potentially capable of bringing out the noblest attributes, not only in the realm of individual feeling, but also in the realm of holiness. And it is nevertheless precisely because of this potential that strict restraints are called for. Indeed, the whole order of relations among the various worlds may be conceived as images of intimate engagement, a kind of sexual contact between one world and another, between one level of being and another. That is why sexual relations themselves have an enormous influence on the soul. All this besides their primary power to create a new human being makes it clear why it is necessary to be extremely respectful to and solicitous about all that concerns the use of the power of sex. In principle, Judaism does not see sexuality only as an instrument 
for the propagation of the human race, a means of being fruitful and multiplying. The relationship between a man and a woman are an organic network, becoming an entity in itself. It brings about the creation of another unity, the family, which is the basic cell of social existence. More profoundly, the family unit is part of the integration of the human individual. In other words, the unattached individual is not yet a whole person. The whole individual is always double, man and woman. Even though each one of a couple is obligated to do his or her own work, physically and spiritually, still the order of their mutuality is what puts each of them on the level of humanity. Consequently, sexual relations outside the family creating couple are forbidden. The prohibitions on all other sexual relations are derived from the fact that in essence, such relations do not bring about the level of wholeness or unity required of a human being. Although the command to be fruitful and multiply is only a part and not a necessary part of the intention and meaning of sexual life, it is a matter of principle that the sexual life should be based on relations whose essence comprises the possibility, at least, of procreation. This principle, in turn, derives from the Jewish view of holiness as something that has such a living reality, it must be fertile, capable of growth and development and the bearing of fruit. Similarly, anything that lacks this potential procreation and growth, whatever has